Welcome to the Career Guy Podcast, a chance to talk with different people and share stories about their careers and career paths, giving you an insightful look at different careers that do exist. Here's your host, Mickey Horvath. This is the second part of a two-part interview with Peter Axtell, a modern-day Renaissance man. Peter is a musician, recording engineer, producer, has been a realtor. He is also the co-founder and managing partner of Pathwise Publishing. In addition, he is the chief business development officer and co-founder of MotivationalFinder.com, which is a self-assessment tool used in inside-out career design. Also, he is the director of media productions and coaching strategy, and also the co-finder of whatsnext.com. In this segment, Peter talks about coming back to the United States and establishing himself. In doing so, he talks about how he became a realtor and the battles he had with himself on this career move. There's some real insights here in picking a good fitting career path for oneself. He provides a description from his perspective on dealing with the mortgage crisis, which then finally led him to a life-changing circumstance. He had a heart attack. He talks about how that changed him as a person and his outlook on life. This all leads up for him to talk about his latest venture, whatsnext.com, where he wants to help people create an authentic, meaningful, and fulfilling life they love while having a successful and rewarding career. This part of the segment will interest anybody that is interested in being a realtor or being in sales as there are some good tips for this. But more importantly, it can be for someone who are not sure of what they may want to do as there is some good fruitful discussion on career development and why it is important and worth the effort. With that, I would like to welcome back Peter. Should we jump into that part of the story? Go wherever you want, yeah. Well, let's talk more about it. So then, assuming you left England at that point, you must have come back to the United States. That's right, that's right. So you came back to the United States. I'm thinking it must be in the 70s now? It was 1976, to be exact. I was in England for six years. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And you're back in the United States. I'm assuming you didn't have too many problems getting back into the country. Nope, I did not. It turns out, actually, the end of the whole draft story was that my case was dropped. And so I am actually not a felon. <laughs> okay. Cool. I don't okay. have any kind of I don't have any kind of terrible record. The case actually against me was okay. it was it was it was dropped. I'm glad I'm not talking to a felon right now. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> you're talking to a fella, but not a felon. That's true. That's right. So, yeah. so you're back in the United States, nineteen seventy six, you came back into the country. Did you go back to Phoenix or did you go back to San Francisco? I was with my former wife then and we decided to move to California. And her family had a friend who owned a real estate company in Santa Rosa, California. And again, they said, oh, a real estate, oh, that might work. That sounds good. I knew nothing about real estate. Oh, that. And I keep harping on this because this idea of, you know, this might work is trying to figure out your life and your work from the outside in. And in the What's Next program that we're, it's called Inside Out Career Design, we're doing mm -hmm. stuff from the inside out. Well, I was doing the classic 
thing that most people do is from the outside in. I'll find some job and I just hope that it matches what I want to do. It's exactly what I was doing. So I said, oh, that sounds good. And we moved to Santa Rosa and I thought, okay, I'll be a real estate agent. This sounds really good. I knew nothing about it. And then I went and took one class on what it meant to be a real estate agent. And that class also, I will never forget, because I sat in the class and it said, hi, I have freshly baked bread and and do this and do that. And I remember sitting in this class and I said, I hate this with every ounce of my being. I hate this. I hate this. I hate this. I really just sincerely hate this. And then I figured out that this guy wasn't giving me a job. He was a, you're all independent contractors. You just go work for the broker. And if you make money, he makes money. It's not really giving you a job. I didn't understand, but I knew how much I hated it. And I said no to that at the time. And I went and did some other stuff, which isn't terribly relevant, but I just went and did some other stuff because I just didn't want to do that. But then for some insane reason, a couple of years later, I talked myself into, I said, I'll be a real estate agent. And I talked myself into it saying, well, there'll be freedom. I can work for myself. And a friend of mine was a songwriter and he was a real estate agent. And I did all those justifications in my head that I said, I can make this work. I hated the class I went to. I didn't even think about was that even suited for it, but I just talked myself into it. It's another thing that people, I believe, do. They'll just talk themselves into it. Yeah, somehow I'll learn to love it. I'll talk myself into it. Maybe that happens sometimes. And one of the reasons I did it, I did it for the money. And at that time, I actually, I had a little bit of money and I had some choices, but I chose not to look at those choices. I just didn't know, Mickey. I just didn't say, I wonder what my choices are other than being a real estate agent. Because I had enough money probably to live for a year or something. I could have chosen something else, but I didn't. I chose it for the money. I said, I'll go there and I'll make all this money and then I'll do this, that, the other. Not thinking about what the ramifications were. I want to ask you a quick question, though, because I see people doing this, and you're right. Do you think you just got tired, maybe? Uh, tired of what? Of chasing something else, and going into real estate, it was just easy. Hmm. That's an interesting question. I think maybe, I would say it was two things. One is, I would say that I didn't know that there were choices out there, and I didn't know where to go and find out where those choices were. I was convinced that I could, there's no way I could make a living any way, shape, or form, anything related to music. I said, I wasn't a good enough piano player to be a music teacher, really. All those things I convinced myself, there's no way that anything music-related I could make a living at. I convinced myself of that as well. That was one thing. And then the other thing was the freedom of being a real estate agent appealed to me. And I think maybe it was just kind of convenient hey, come and do this. I said, okay, I'll just kind of do a default thing, which many people do. It just seems like a good idea at the time, and I'll just go and try this and hope it works out. So I think it's a combination of the two. And you obviously pursued this. I did. And you didn't like it, though. Oh, put it mildly. But you did do it for 15 years, though. Tell us yeah. your experience about this part of the story. How did this all kind of materialize for you? I'm interested. Well, one of the things that I've always believed in is education. I've always believed in getting is the best possible training that you can get. And so I said, okay, if I'm going to be a real estate agent, then I'm going to get the best training that you can get. So before I even got my license, 
maybe a couple of months before, I already started training with one of the top real estate training companies, hardcore real estate training companies in the United States that will go unnamed. And so I was taught that when you're a new agent, you have to get on the phone and you have to just hammer the phones and you have to bother people. You just have to phone and 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 bother people until you can make something happen so you can do business. And in fact, that, that actually does work. So I got my license, and here is what my first week on the job was, probably my first or second day. I was in the what they call the bullpen, and there's a phone and a little cheap desk, and then there's a bunch of people around you, and then my job is to just get on the phone and call expired listings and for sale by owners and all that stuff. Just get on the phone and just bother people and do whatever you can to get them to stay on the phone and bother people, bother people, bother people. And then it was rejection, 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 rejection. So after my first two hours of doing this, I got up from that and I went to one of the veteran agents in the office whose name was also Peter. And I looked at him and I said, I cannot tell you, Peter, how much I hate this. I hate this with all my heart. I absolutely hate this. And then he said a key thing. He said, Peter, what the hell else are you going to do? Get back in there and get on the phone. And I believed him. What else am I going to do? This idea, I have no choice. What else am I going to do? Get back on the phone. I went back on the phone and I continued to just hate what I did for years and years and years and years. Probably should say I did enjoy the camaraderie of other people because that's kind of how I'm wired. But the actual work, the whole industry, everything, I never want to be. No offense to all you real estate agents out there, but I never want to be an agent for the next 500,000 lifetimes. And not even after that, ever again, do I ever want to do something like that. It just was totally not me. I am not built for that. I'm the wrong person for that type of work. Some people, it's the right work. And after about... 12 years of this because I am a tenacious person. It's the other thing that people do. You just get into this dead-end job and you just grind away and grind away. And no matter how much money I made, the first year, by the way, I was rookie of the year. I sold more than any other new agents in my office of 200 agents. I was a rookie of the year. I did very well financially. All that didn't make any difference to me. The money didn't do it. No matter when I got paid, it just didn't do it. But anyway, so time went on and, and years went by. And then the big a real estate housing crisis happened the third week of July 2000, 2005. And I saw the market start to turn because everything was going kind of great. You know, everyone was selling houses. The market was out of their mind and all this kind of stuff. And then it started to turn. And then when the market turned, my income dropped by 75%. Nobody was buying houses. Nobody was selling houses because the market was crashing. Real estate agents were leaving the business because they couldn't make a living. I actually didn't know what else to do, so I continued on. And then I decided there's a thing called short sales. And that was when people were losing their houses, you could have an agent negotiate with the bank to let them out of their loan, and they could get out from underneath all of this debt. But nobody wanted to do this kind of work because it was so awful dealing with the banks and then dealing with families losing everything. And I was one of the few agents that I went and got trained, learned how to do it, and it was just awful. People losing everything, particularly women, the roof over their heads. People are running up their credit cards. People are just buried underwater. There's no hope, and it was just complete stress. And I'm a pretty empathetic person, and I decided to take this on to see if I could help these people. And 
I did that for five years of complete stress, soaking up more and more and more of their trauma. I had the misguided thing that my empathy was somehow helping them, but I got too merged in their own stuff and was absorbing all of this stress and heartache and anxiety. And the other thing is, when people get scared and they're starting to lose everything, they often attack the very people that are trying to help them. And so I was doing my very best to help these people, and I got attacked many times by people who were just so scared, but they were attacking me as if I was responsible for it. And very seldom did I ever actually get a thank you at the end of all this work where I got people out of this terrible situation. And I don't say that as a martyr. I'm just saying that what a thankless job it was. But it was the only that I could survive. By that, I had gotten a divorce, and, and I was living by myself. And I came home from work one day. And another grinding day at a soulless job that I just hated. And I started to feel a little started to feel a little funny. And I was like, oh, that, that feels, I feel kind of lightheaded, sort of weird. And the next thing I knew, I just collapsed on my bed. And I felt like I had an elephant crushing my chest. And I said, wow, this feels terrible. And I wondered, I said, Peter, are you, are you making this up? And I thought the pressure on my chest, I thought my ribs were just going to crack. And I said, I think this is really bad. I might be having a heart attack. And I'm all by myself. And I'm lying on the bed, and then it subsides a little bit. And I'm thinking, this is really bad. I have to get to a hospital. And I make a terrible mistake. I think I have no time to get to the hospital. So I get in my car, and I drive myself. People listening to this podcast don't ever drive yourself to the hospital. Call 911. But I, I didn't think I had time. And I drove 10 miles across town after I'd had a major heart attack and went up to the doors of Kaiser Hospital in Santa Rosa and walked in the front door and just collapsed on the floor. And I'm tearing up a little bit here because my dad was a doc, my mom was a nurse, and, and when I fell on the floor in the hospital, all these wonderful people just swarmed around me and whisked me into the emergency room. And I'm lying there, and I knew something bad had happened. And I'm lying there, and they got me stabilized. And I said to the doctor, I think I've had a heart attack, haven't I? And he said, oh, yeah, you've, you've had a heart attack. And he says, another 30 minutes, and you'd be dead. That's scary. That's really scary. Wow. I can see what you're tearing so, up, yeah. So... I have to go to surgery, and we're going to have to, we're going to stent in your heart. And he says, you've had a really bad one. Well, what are my chances? And he looked at me completely emotionless, like a doctor. He said, well, about 50-50. And I sat there. I said, my God, my life is down to a, a coin toss. I'm either going to walk out the front door, or I'm going to be carted out the back door. It's all down, kind of down to a, a coin toss. But I also said something else. This whole sense of calm came down over me. And I really was not afraid. And I said to myself in that, in that moment, I said, if I get out of this, then I am never going back to a job that I hate. I am never going to sacrifice my own health and everything to something to help. Throw me out on the street, but I am never going back. And I didn't. I'm glad you told that story because it obviously really woke you up and it made you realize right away that it was not working out for you. And that's why the stress was so high, not to mention what was going on with the mortgage crisis. You explained it really well. And I think overall, 
we hear a lot of stories on the surface level, but you re- really describe that. A lot of people are losing their homes and they were taking their anger out on you. And even though you were trying to help them and that pressure just finally um, just got to you. Yeah. Yeah. By the way, I do not recommend the heart attack. I recommend that if you're in a job that you hate, then you should get out before the heart attack. I do not recommend it. It's not a good idea. Words of wisdom. I think I'd definitely put that in the summary as well. And I think maybe I'll put it on a Facebook quote too. I interviewed somebody the other day that had a heart attack because they didn't like their job. And don't wait for that heart attack because you may or may not come out. So that's words of wisdom. Obviously, you recovered from the heart attack. So then let's get into your third phase of your life. I mean, we've talked about the music, we've talked about the real estate. Now let's get into your third phase of life because obviously you've recovered. You're, you're obviously talking to me. and <laughs> It worked out, fortunately. Yeah. It, it worked yeah. out. So <laughs> let's talk about this next phase of your life. What transpired? And how did you get everything going? Well, so after that, as I was wrapping things up in my real estate life, I had made the decision I am never going to go back. I'm, now I'm going to pay attention to what it is that interests me. And I heard a great line the other day is, pay attention to what you're paying attention to. This is great wisdom. Pay attention to what you're paying attention to. Pay attention to what you're interested in. Pay attention to what you're drawn to. Pay attention to that. And about that time, a friend of mine gave me a famous book called Start With Why. And I read Simon Sinek's book, and it just completely flip my life on its ear. And Simon Sinek, if I ever get a chance to meet you, then I'm going to thank you because you've changed so many lives. And that book really did change my life because I really started to think about what what is my purpose? What do I really want to do? What is going to get me out of bed in the morning? And I started to explore what really interested me. And so I've always been interested in media. I've always been interested in music and recording. I used to have a small recording studio and produce other people. So that was, I had a part of producing and playing music and studio and all the technology, which I love and the whole creative part. And then it was from Simon Sinek's book that I thought, wouldn't it be cool to go and make films for businesses to describe their why? And it was a creative idea. I thought this would be good because as Simon pointed out that when you start with why, which is his famous line, this is a great place to start for a business. So here's what we represent. I said, well, wouldn't it be cool to put this in a video that a business could have on a website? And so I borrowed a camera from a friend and a tripod. And I think I didn't even have any lights. I, did, I just think I'm going to have someone sit next to a window. And I had no lights. I just had a little microphone and I borrowed a camera and a tripod. But I didn't know where to go. And then I heard of a guy who is an accountant in Napa Valley, who was somehow associated with Simon Sinek. He was some case study or whatever. And out of the blue, I just decided, okay, I'm going to call him up. And I and I called this guy up and I said, hi, my name is Peter Ashtell. You don't know me. And I want to come and make a Y film of your business because I heard you were on a call with Simon Sinek or something. And I want to come and make a call. And he kind of went, well, I, I, um, no, not really. And I, but I, all those years in real estate, being on the phone, I could I got to be pretty convincing with people, and I was able to convince him to just least let's have a conversation. I'm not asking for money; I just want to come and shoot a little video and find out about what your why is. So Craig finally said, Craig Underwood, he said, "Well, okay." And I went to Napa with my little camera, my little tripod. I did not know what the heck I was doing at all. But I had a lot of enthusiasm, and I also had this feeling inside that this, you know, I think maybe I could, 
I, I think I can do this. Something. It was. It was similar to sitting in front of that music in the studio. And once I started to play, I had confidence. I said, you know, I think I can do this. I can do this. So there was this inner confidence because I was tapping into something inside of me that gave me an inner confidence, which I think maybe that's another lesson. This, where do you feel a sense of inner confidence? Maybe you don't have absolute mastery, but maybe you have a certain amount of fire and interest and a pull, a calling almost that you say, I have sort of a confidence that I could maybe make this work. So anyway, I went to see Craig and I set up my stuff and then I conducted my very first interview. And afterwards, he said something amazing. He said, Peter, I just have to tell you, I was convinced that you were a real estate agent doing a bait and switch, trying to sell some real estate to me. But for some reason, I agreed to let you come and interview me anyway. <laughs> he said that to me later. But he said to me, there's something about you. You are an interviewer. You have some kind of ability to connect and communicate with people. Why am I getting teared up about this? It was some acknowledgement about something inside of me that I could do. It was some feedback from the environment that said, you could be really, really good at this. And I walked out of there you know, high as a kite, and I made my very first Y film. I know there's spiritual synchronicity, you could say. Somebody else encouraging you to do something else or what you wanted to do yeah. now. Love that term. That, Mickey, that's a spiritual synchronicity. That's a wonderful, wonderful term. I think you're absolutely right. But I had to do something in addition to doing Y films because I didn't say, okay, well, I have to get started, but I still needed to make money. And then I began to reflect based on Simon's book about, okay, what is it that, Peter, what is it that you have been good at? What is it? Trying to look for the feedback in the environment that I had missed. And what I had missed was that virtually my entire time in my real estate life, people kept showing up to my door saying, you know what? I need some help with this. I need some advice with this. I don't know how to do this. And because I've been so interested in learning how things worked, I made sure I was a really, really well-trained real estate agent and understood statistics and all this kind of stuff. But then I began to say, you know, people keep showing up at my door wanting they want advice. And I thought, gosh, I wonder if I could be a, maybe I could be a coach. And that was when I decided to become a coach and get properly trained to be a coach. So I was going to do a combination thing when I was going to make Y films and then I was going to go to coaching school and become a coach and follow that because that is also something that is deep inside of me that I am able to do. I have some kind of ability to do that, some insight about other people. So I picked a coaching school in Colorado. And I just think I have to tell you a, a, a side sure. story. About this time, I wanted to meet another woman. I wanted to meet a partner, but I wanted a specific kind of partner. And my spiritual teacher at the time, they do the typical things like you want to meet the right kind of a partner, you know, make a list about what you want, this, that, and the other. So I had a couple of things that I did have in mind that I wanted in a partner. But one of the main things that I wanted was I wanted a partner who was outwardly focused. I wanted a person who wanted to serve the world like I did. And not everybody is like that, and no offense to them. There's just some people are, some people aren't. But I wanted a partner next to me that we could say, how can we serve the world together, being outwardly focused? And I said, well, how do I meet somebody? And then my spiritual teacher, he said to me, go take care of a lonely person. And I said, what? 
what kind of relationship advice is that? Don't I go on Match.com or something? <laughs> is that go take care of a lonely person? And at the time, I was living in Sebastopol, California, a beautiful little town outside of Santa Rosa. And I kept driving past the Furcrest convalescent home. This was a kind of a sad convalescent home, a non-fancy convalescent home. And I kept driving past that every day, coming back and forth. And I said, I want to go in there and play music for the people at the convalescent home. And I will never forget this moment. When I walked into this convalescent home, and there were all these people in wheelchairs and very sick and in crutches and all various stages of decay and all kinds of stuff. And I can remember my mind looking at those people and saying, oh, I'll never be like that. I'll never be in that position. I actually heard myself say that. That'll never happen to me. I remember saying that. Wow, how ridiculous. And I went up to the counter and I said, I want to come and play music for the people in this home. And she says, no, we, we can't pay you any money. I said, I don't want any money. I just want to come and play once a week for the people here. I just want to come and play music because I wanted to take care of lonely people so that I could meet the woman of my dreams. Crazy. Yeah, who would have thunk? So for the next year, every week, I would go to the Furcrest Convalescent Home and I would set up my guitar, my little microphone and stuff, and I would play country songs for people in convalescent home, all in wheelchairs, kind of sitting in a semicircle in various stages of decay, playing country songs. And over a period of time, all of these people who were in these various stages of decay all turned into angels. Now, that may sound kind of woo-woo, which it is not. They really all changed. Imagine... I would be playing a Johnny Cash song. Y'all hear the train coming. I am so not Johnny Cash. I am the opposite of Johnny Cash. But they loved country songs, and so I had to play these country songs because these are the songs they knew. And to see somebody who can barely move their forefinger, if we were watching video, just a little finger tapping. I hear the train coming, rolling down the track. And they would just tap their finger. That's all they could do. It was mind-blowing. And to see them lit up by the power of music, and I would walk out of that week after week, I'd walk out and just burst into tears. It was the most incredible experience. But nothing was happening. I could not get a woman to look at me to save my life, and it has never been my problem my whole life. But I couldn't, nothing was happening. So flash forward back, I decided to go to coaching school, and I was thinking about that, and I decided to go on a retreat in Northern California it was a 10-day silent retreat, about 180 people in Prescott, Arizona, in a massive snowstorm. And I walk into the room, there's 180 people in this room, and we're kind of waiting for the retreat to start. And you could talk in the beginning, and then everything was going to be silent for the next nine days. And I walk into this room, and I see this woman. And she's in terrible pain. Something's wrong. And I walk up to her, and I say, are you okay? You look terrible. And she said, yeah, I have a slip disc in my lower back, and we're going to do this 10-day retreat. And I said, ay, ay, ay. So an acquaintance of mine was a chiropractor. And I asked him, can you look at this woman and see if you can help her? She's in terrible pain. We've got this meditation retreat going on. And he said, yeah, sure. Well, this woman was, shall we say, rather gorgeous. And I don't mean just gorgeous. I mean world-class gorgeous. And so that happened, and then I never saw her again for the next nine days. 
And she's the kind of person, you know, when you see her, you would say, well, yeah, she's a pretty striking person. And I never saw her again for the next nine days. And that was it. And so when I went back from the retreat, and I went back to Santa Rosa, and I was playing in the Furcrest Convalescent Home and thinking about going to coaching school. I picked this coaching school in Colorado, as I said. So they were going to do this training at a small conference center in Florissant, Colorado, in the, in the middle of nowhere. And I, I signed up, and I walk into the lobby of this center for training with my suitcase, and I put my suitcase down. If anyone could see the video, I put my suitcase down. I'm standing in the lobby, and I look to my left, and here is the same woman. <laughs> I don't know if I'll be able to get through this. The same woman I had seen at the retreat two years before standing six inches away from me. Honest to God, six inches away. I looked over, and I just about fell over. I went, oh, my God. <laughs> and, I, I, and I didn't know her name or anything. But I knew who she was, and I said, what are you doing here? I, how? What? And she looked at me and said, oh, it's so nice to see you again. And I go, what do you mean? I said, yeah, well, it was nice to see you in Boulder a couple of weeks ago. No, that wasn't me. And she said, well, you seem so familiar to me. But no, that wasn't me. And that was the beginning of the retreat. And so for the next five days, Nicola and I spent the next five days together during the retreat together, I was just in complete bliss. So we just hung out for the next five days as we're doing this coach training together. And she had landed there by complete serendipity. It's a whole other story about why she was even there in the first place. But then now it's Friday, and the training is now going to end. And now I have to say goodbye to this angel, and I'm just completely bereft. <laughs> I'm going to have to say goodbye. And I'm going to get a ride back to Denver with this other person, and Nicola comes up to me, and she says, Peter, would you like a ride to the airport? <laughs> and I said, oh, wait a minute, let me check my schedule here, I'll see if I can, I'll see if I can fit you in here. <laughs> and I said, sure, <laughs> sure. And so she had rented a car, and we're in the car, and we're going to Denver, and she's going to take me to the airport. My plane's leaving at 8 o'clock that night. And on the way back from Florissant, we decided to stop at a restaurant to have dinner. And I'm completely in heaven and I'm completely depressed because I'm going to have to say goodbye to this wonderful person. And we have dinner. And then I'm looking at my watch and I said, well, I guess we better get going because my plane's going to be leaving. And so we said, okay. We get in the car and we get on to I-70 and the highway is like a parking lot. It is just crawling. Some accident had happened. And we're driving along in the car, Nicholas driving, and we're sitting there, and I'm looking at my watch, and I said, oh my gosh, it looks like I might miss my plane. And she turns to me, and she says, you know, wouldn't be the end of the world if you missed your plane. And now, I'm in the passenger seat, and my hair is completely on fire. If you could see me, I'm going, I, this can't be, and I'm going, but you could just do, I go, this is right out of a movie. This cannot be happening. And I said, okay, that's it. I'm missing my plane. <laughs> and we continued on to Denver and we spent the weekend together. And then Sunday came and I was going to get the plane back to California on Sunday. And then Sunday came. <laughs> we had the most amazing time. And Sunday comes and I'm going to go, oh my God, this is so sad. And then Nicholas says, that's too bad you have to go back to California. <laughs> and I said, 
that's it. I'm missing my plane again. <laughs> I'm not gonna. And anyway, so we spent more time together. Went to New Mexico and did travel around and stuff. And then I finally did go back to California. And the end of the story is she came to see me before she went back to Germany, spent some more time together. And then she went back to Germany and she's there. And I was an absolute abject, miserable, just a miserable thing. I thought everything is working out. I had met the woman of my dreams and now she's back in Germany and it's just not, ah, it's just not happening. And then she came back. Three months later, she came back and I was beyond words beyond just thrilled words. And she came with me to the Furcrest Convalescent Home, and she had her Tibetan singing bowls. And she came with me to, because I was a star at the Furcrest Convalescent Home, and Nicola came back, and the people at the Furcrest Convalescent Home go, when's Nicola? Is she, she going to come back? Is she going to They kept asking me, is she coming back? Or is she not coming back? I said, I don't know if she's coming back. I don't think so. And they were all, well, is she coming back? And then, we walked into the Furcrest Convalescent Home, and Nicola was with me. And we walked into the room. And if you can picture this, all these people in the room I'd been playing with for a year, we walked into the room, and, and Nicola was with me. And I played guitar, and she played her Tibetan bowls and stuff. And that was over 10 years ago. And we've been together ever since. Well, that's a neat story. I mean, definitely is. And things do work out the way they're supposed to. I mean, that's one of the key messages I'm getting from that. Yeah. For the last 10 years, you've definitely been working on a project together with Nicola. Would you like to describe that a little bit more as well? Oh, sure. It turns out that Nicola was outwardly focused like I was, and then we wanted to figure out what can we do to serve the world and also do something that we enjoy doing that fits our skills and everything else. Is it possible to combine that? Because the question that, that we are trying to answer, is it possible to create an authentic, meaningful and fulfilling life you love while building a successful and rewarding career. This is what we're doing today, and this is the question that we are trying to answer for people and to help people to accomplish that. And so to that end, after many missteps, which I don't have time to go into now, we put together a number of different companies, which is now our main website is whatsnext.com. And so over this last 10 years, been failing and, and succeeding and failing and succeeding. And now we're trying to help people find meaningful work, but not just meaningful work, but a meaningful career and a meaningful life. And to that end, we have spent the last year building a, a massive program, a six-week program for people to go through from beginning to end. And the basis of the entire program is called Inside Out Career Design. And technically, it's inside-out life and career design, but suffice to say, inside-out career design, meaning the opposite of what most people are doing, what I did, what Nickel has done, what most people have done, trying to have something outside match what you want inside, rather than doing the work inside to say, wait a minute, what is it that I'm interested in? What is it that I'm good at? What could I learn? All the stuff that you need to figure out from the inside, and then go and try and pick the right kind of career path. And it's not one path. We liken it to a voyage. You think you're on a big ship and you're on a voyage and you pick kind of a direction, but you might change directions many times. You're on a voyage and you're going to take these little mini voyages until you find something that sticks. And we are more than confident, we have some past experiences that it works, is it because when you do that from the inside out, 
we are also approaching this from the place of motivation. We are very interested in motivation and what motivates people. And without having this be a big commercial, we have an assessment called Motivation Finder. And Motivation Finder will identify in a person what their motivational blueprint is, what their operating manual is, how you are wired the way you are, what it is that you desire in your life. And it goes way beyond that you are an introvert or an extrovert. All those are fine, but this goes way, way deeper and gets so specific so that you have a very big chance, not very well said, but a very big chance to pick the kind of career that will suit how your personality, how you're wired, what your desires are that you have grown up with your whole life. It's part of who you are. So it's inside out career design. And that's what we have built. So I get to use our filmmaking skills and my audio skills and our coaching skills and all that rolled into the program. It sounds like it's been a lot of fun putting this together. It must have been. Insane amount of work. But when you are doing the kind of work that is fulfilling, it's amazing where you can find the energy. I think we've done, I think the program has 110 videos. I've edited 110 videos or more. And so when you're doing something that you're not working against yourself, to say it more clearly, there's a thing in you, the thing in me, the thing in everybody, there's a thing called desires. And there are certain desires in you that every day you wake up and you are trying to fulfill those desires. That's what Motivation Finder identifies. What are those desires? And can I live those desires? That's what everybody does. Whether you know about them or not, you try and live those desires every day. If you are going against those desires, you are going against the current of who you are, the current of your life. You are fighting yourself. You are fighting what you want. But the trick is people don't wake up and say, gee, I wonder what my desires are, unless you are someone has taught you or you've been exposed to that and that you have an instrument to discover that, you can't know that. But when you know that, then you can get very specific. I can look up on my wall right now and I can see what my top desires are and I can look at it and say, am I living my desires today, this week, or am I going against the current of who I am? It's very powerful. It's an interesting way of looking at things, definitely, because you told me off the record that 70% of the people are doing jobs that they're not happy with, and I think that's pretty accurate. I think that's one of the problems of our society. We talk about working to save the planet, but we have such a big workforce where people are not even happy, they're not even fulfilled themselves. And I think about that, and I think about disease, I think about diabetes on the rise, I think about even obesity on the rise and all these other diseases that are on the rise, how much of that is contributing to the fact that people are doing things every day that they're not happy with? And you were a really good example of that when you had your heart attack. You were clearly working against yourself. You were doing something that you weren't happy with. Mind you, you did also have a lot of pressure at the very end, but something was definitely pushing you to to wake up, so to speak. So I think that you're, you're doing something that's probably help a lot of people and essentially that's why i'm doing my podcast as well to open people up saying well does this resonate with you because if it doesn't then why are you pursuing it i know when i used to work at the university of calgary a lot of people would pick engineering because engineering paid well and no matter what type of engineer you want to be you can make a lot of money as an engineer and it's also a prestigious position too because you're sort of the go-to sort of like mbas as well or lawyers but a lot of people just go into it and they don't have the skill. 
I mean, it takes a lot to get into an engineering school, but they just, they're not technical. They're, they just don't have that ability to problem solve all day and solve complex problems. And I think it takes a real unique person to be an engineer. And you want to be a technical person, but you also thrive on solving complex problems. And if you struggle against that, I think in, you're lacking flow. But I think a lot of people are just in the wrong professions and they struggle with it every day. So I think if you can get people into the right professions and where people are happy and productive, and you indicated that a little bit earlier too, where, okay, if you can compromise a bit of money, but you're happy getting up every day and you're content, I think that the vibe that you put out throughout the day is also really good and it spins off to other people. And I think by doing that, we could all lead better and more productive lives. And when we talk about saving the planet and whatnot, I think that will just spin off of that as well. I don't know what your thoughts about all this is. Let's take the point of just health. This is not something that I made up or some woo-woo thing. Studies and the research shows that your mental health, the mind-body connection is no joke. It absolutely will affect your immune system. This is a proven thing. This is true. It's also proven that, who is it, Martin Seligman, the founder of Positive Psychology Movement, when he says, just think about whenever you've been around somebody who is really has a sense of centeredness and fulfillment. Not necessarily happy all the time, we can't be happy all the time, but the sense of groundedness and fulfillment, and they're just great to be around. You have been around people like that where you just feel lifted up by just their state of being. Just, just, I once heard a thing, I think it might have been Nietzsche, who said, it's not what are you doing, it's who are you being. And, and that's very different than here's what I'm doing. It, it is who you are being. And the whole money issue is fine. I like money as much as anybody. If you can make a bunch of money but not do the heart attack thing, then that's kind of the best of all worlds. And I think how can you do anything about the planet if you yourself are so unhappy and so miserable? A, what it does psychologically and with regards to flow, because one of our big things in our program that we do is that we teach flow because we are huge fans of flow and Beehive Chickman CI and all that. But when you get in that place, you get very narrow and you cannot see your vision is very, very narrow because you're being flooded with all these negative cortisol fear chemicals. And then you can't feel empathy for other people. You can't feel a sense of openness and health. You just can't. So how can you help save the planet if you yourself are so miserable? That whole thing about, oh, I have to take care of myself, it's actually it is very true. So none of this is esoteric woo-woo stuff. Now science has really proven the science of flow and everything. All the fear chemicals, all that stuff has been studied now. This stuff is for real. And, you know, if you're unhappy, <laughs> you just can't be good to anyone else. What I don't understand, Mickey, to my mind, this is so obvious. If you see the world of work and you see certain companies that understand this, it is nothing but a win-win situation. You have motivated people. You have people who are fulfilled in what they're doing. It doesn't mean that they get to do whatever they want. It doesn't mean no boundaries. It doesn't mean any of that. It means having people plugged in to the right kind of work that matches their desires, that matches their motivational blueprint as closely as possible. And then when you have that, then they want to innovate and all this other kind of stuff. It's all a complete win-win situation. And why that 70% of people are still unhappy at work and that needle has not moved much in the last 30 or 40 years, why that has not changed, I wish I knew the answer to that. I don't know. 
Do you think it's not changed because it's just a takeoff of the industrial revolution? I mean, when we think about the workforce, I mean, it started up in the early part of the last century. That's when manufacturing started taking place with automotives and with Henry Ford and whatnot. And we started becoming more of a consumer society. And maybe you might have an answer to this. Where did the 40-hour week come from? I could never figure that out. I don't know where it's come from, <laughs> but it became sort of a standard and we it sort of just got stamped onto our our society and we sort of accepted it. And sure, my, my parents did it and they ingrained it into to me and my friends and we've been sort of following this sort of status quo. I think you indicated it a little bit earlier in the, in the interview of people are beginning to wake up a little bit more and begin to realize and question things more. And especially since maybe COVID has happened, I think people are just going, well, wait a second, hold on. Is there a better way maybe? And I think maybe people are not so much pushing back, but I think they're just questioning things. So maybe it's just a slow transition. But the fact that you're doing what you're doing and I'm doing what I'm doing, I think maybe there is a bit of a demand. I know we're, get, we're both getting support so I think anybody who hears what we're doing, people are encouraging us, going, well, that's a neat idea. That's a good idea because there is a need for it. I think that maybe people are beginning to wake up towards it and begin to realize, well, okay, well, you know, there, is there a better way? I don't know what your thoughts about that are. Well, I, I think that it is clear that people are no longer, not everybody, but a lot of people are no longer willing to risk their life for their work. That's one thing that COVID really showed. I'm not going to go risk my life for a paycheck, even if I have to figure out some other way. They're not going to do that. People are looking to do something else. And I believe that the one of the biggest sticking points is that people really just don't know where to start. Where do I get the help I need? What do I need to know specifically so I can take the first step and then the second step and then the third step? How could I make some kind of a change or either maybe advance your career or choose a different career or choose a career at all. You know, where do I get started so that when I make that choice, I have done enough work where I can say I have my eyes are open and for right now, this seems to be the best choice for me to make right now. And personally, in our whole thing that we're doing, we want people to do this safely. We do not want to go move to Italy and eat, pray, love. And I love, what is her name? That's a great book. And Elizabeth Gilbert. Elizabeth, one, amazing. Elizabeth, if I ever meet you, you are so awesome. But we also don't want people to say, I'll just click my heels and move to Italy and hope that everything works out. That is not what it's about. You can't just throw everything out and hope it works out. So we want people to do things safely and be able to do them in a series of experiments. But to say, I now know I've done enough work to say, here's what's available, here's what I'm good at, et cetera, to be able to make the right decision and then make that decision, rather than, oh, I'll just go be a real estate agent and, oh, maybe it'll work out 15 years later, heart attack. If I can help one person not go down that road, it's been a really good day for me. <laughs> but seriously, I do not want, I don't want anybody to have to go through that. So your company's called whatsnext.com. So literally, what? What's it's, next? Yes, W-H-A-T-S-N-E-X-T dot com. Okay, so I always end every podcast with just words of wisdom. I mean, obviously, you've done a lot with your life. You definitely had the music career going. You went from San Francisco all the way to England, and you traveled a lot within that country. You seem pretty close to being 
blasted off as a musician. And <laughs> you, for whatever reason, you explained to us why you did not do that and have faith because if you said yes, who knows what your life would have been turned out to be like, but you said no. And you've had some mishaps, of course, with real estate and whatnot, but then you're doing something pretty neat and pretty outwardly and you're really trying to serve the world a lot better. With your life experiences, if, what would you like to pass on to anybody that's listening that maybe wants to be a musician? Maybe there's people out there that are in real estate and they do actually like it. I mean, I interviewed a realtor last year in Calgary and he really likes what he does. So, I mean, there's people that do like it. Or somebody who's just listening goes, I'm not sure what I want to do. What would you like to pass on to somebody who's just listening and just is not sure or maybe wants to do one or the other? Well, if I may, I would say maybe two or three things, if that's okay. Sure. Yeah, um, absolutely. I want to just hear this. Yeah, yeah. I think one thing that I would pass on is not to live a should life, meaning a life that someone else thinks you should live because it seems to be their agenda, even with the best of intentions. But the idea of, am I living a should life? Am I living someone else's idea of what my life should be? Or am I even pointed in the direction of the life that I want to live? I think that's one thing. I think the other thing that there are certain things a person has to work. Let's take, for example, music. I have no illusions that I'm going to go out and be some kind of a rock star. and I have no illusions. But that doesn't stop me from feeding that deep part of myself of playing music uh, every day. Pick up my guitar and, and play music or do some recording or write a song or some of the videos that we do, I've written the music for our videos. I've used some of my other musical talents in the work that we do today. Filmmaking and stuff is very related to music. It's cameras, but there's still audio. So it's, there's some related stuff that I love to do, but relates to the work I'm doing. It doesn't have to be, I must find that exact thing. And there can be other things that feeds that desire. I keep going on this thing about desires. That feeds that desire within me, and that helps me to feel fulfilled. And I think the third thing that I would say, do not, if you can, unless you absolutely have to, you need money right now and you need to go and get a job because you have to feed your family, you have to pay your rent, then absolutely you have to do that. But don't pick a kind of a career from the outside and just hope that it works out. Hope that you'll learn to love it, just you know, flipping a coin and hope that it works. Your precious life is way, way too too precious, to, to hope that, that it's going to somehow match. And I would say to do whatever, whether it's the inside-out career design or whatever, find some place that gives you the tools to learn how to pick a rewarding career or job that from the inside out and not from the outside in. Okay, words of wisdom. I'm not going to add to that because I think you said it really, really well, really well put. With that, I'd like to just... Thank Peter for this afternoon. He had quite the story to tell. It was really remarkable. And I'm forever grateful for that. This has been very enlightening and very good. And I'm sure the listeners really enjoyed it as well. Thank you, Mickey. I really want to thank Peter for that insightful, interesting, and enlightening conversation. Some of the key takeaways are Peter spent a great deal of time convincing himself that he liked being a realtor. And even though he was good at it, 
It was the combination of a poor career choice, as he hated being a realtor, as I mentioned, he was good at it, with the added pressure of the mortgage crisis that led him to have a heart attack. Never sacrifice your health for your job. It is not worth it, as he puts it. Words of wisdom. However, this was life-changing as he woke up. It was this that led him to experiment and play with some of his other interests. But more importantly, he figured out that he wanted to serve the world. But how? This led him down the path of playing music, filming, and coaching. In doing so, he finally met the love of his life, Nicola, who had the same aspirations as Peter. They both wanted to make a difference in the world. It is both their efforts that have led them to develop a series of tools to help people create a fulfilling life while having a rewarding career, which is whatsnext.com. His advice at the end, life is too precious to do something you do not like. Find something you do like and pursue it. If not, experiment. Be willing to feed your dreams. As he puts it, he still plays music even though he will not be a famous rock star. But he loves to play music and he still does that. So feed your dreams. He talks about the creative process. Asking why and what am I interested in. Do a lot of self-exploration if you can. With that, I would like to thank Peter once again for that enlightening conversation. Please tune in for the next episode of The Career Guy, where I'm interviewing Chanel Abraham, a career in life and health sciences, data and research. And for other episodes and blogs from The Career Guy, visit www.thecareerguy.ca. And thanks for listening.